Welcome everyone to this Eric webinar. I'm Claudio Sandroni from the University of Rome, Italy. Today, the topic of our webinar is cardiac arrest. Each year, more than 200,000 cardiac arrests occur in Europe and around 50,000 of those patients are successfully resuscitated and admitted to European hospitals and ICUs. Unfortunately, most of these patients will die before hospital discharge because of severe brain injury occurring during or after cardiac arrest and treatments mitigate brain injury are lacking. One neuroprotective strategy that's recently been proposed is in using hypercapnia to increase blood flow to the brain after cardiac arrest. This is the topic of the randomized controlled trial TAME published last week. And to discuss the TAME trial, we have here Marcus Prefors from the University of Helsinki, Helsinki Finland. Welcome, Marcus. Hello. Very nice to be here. Nice to have you here. And Chiara Roba from the University of Genoa, Italy. Welcome, Chiara. Thank you, Claudio. Thank you, Marcus. And hello to everybody. Welcome. So, Marcus, I will start from you first. You were on the steering committee of this trial. Tell our listeners what was its rationale. Yeah, so the, the whole story of carbon dioxide, if you like, started, I guess, about 10 years ago. When, when there were a series of epidemiological observational studies that looked at carbon dioxide over the first 24 to 48 hours uh, in patients mechanically ventilated in the ICU. Uh, and, and there were a few separate studies that all seemed to suggest that if the carbon dioxide was slightly higher, then the patient's mortality was lower and the proportion of patients who survived with good neurological outcome was also higher. Uh, and with that, uh, there was a set of pilot studies. There was one pilot study conducted in Australia, Melbourne, and New Zealand. It, it was called the CCC trial, published in 2016, uh, where in a small sample, uh, about 45 to 50 patients, they showed that if you target moderate hypercapnia, meaning a millimeters of mercury of 50 to 55, or if for those of you who use kilopascals, so 6.7 to 7.3, there appear to be lower levels of neuron-specific NLAs, a biomarker of brain injury, if you targeted normal uh, hypercapnia, moderate hypercapnia. Then there was uh, also the Comacare study, slightly larger pilot study, where the, the carbon dioxide target was at the higher end of what can be considered normal, so around 6 kilopascals uh, or 45 millimeters of mercury. Then comparing that to very tight normal capnia, 4.5 kilopascals, or 33.75 millimeters of mercury. Uh, and that Comacare study showed uh, an increase in cerebral oxygenation measured with near-infrared near spectroscopy if you targeted uh, the higher uh, carbon dioxide level. Uh, the Comacare study, however, did not show the same neuron-specific NLAs uh, decrease with uh, targeting the, the higher carbon dioxide. So, so these uh, 
and then, okay. and then there was also some uh, animal data. There's been some intriguing uh, animal data in, in patients with in, in epilepsy models showing an alleviation of epileptic activity if you target hypercapnia. Uh, and also there's been studies uh, in neonates uh, looking at this uh, increase in cerebral blood flow with uh, uh, higher carbon dioxide suggesting, suggesting possible benefits. Uh, and because of this, because of the appeal of the intervention, you know, a very cheap, uh, actually a, a free intervention, it would not cost mm. anything to target a higher carbon dioxide. Uh, the TAME trial uh, was designed and received funding uh, and then mm -hmm. finally concluded last okay. year and published this year. Okay, Marcus, so to summarize your point, uh, mild hypercapnia can increase cerebral blood flow. That was the rationale of the study in general. And the moderate hypercapnia may potentially decrease signs of brain injury and potentially improve the outcome of hypoxic escape brain injury after cardiac arrest. But these were pilot trials, so we needed something more. Plus, we have observational evidence showing that mild hypercapnia can be um, potentially beneficial after cardiac arrest. But we were missing until recently a uh, randomized control trial. So then a uh, same trial came. And what did you compare in this trial? So in the same trial, the comparison was, or, or the, the setup was that in a patient that arrives in the intensive care unit who's unconscious, who's had a cardiac or an unknown cause of the cardiac arrest and is eligible for intensive care without major restrictions uh, and are being mechanically ventilated, uh, you were randomized to one of two groups. Either you targeted moderate hypercapnia, which translates into a carbon dioxide level of 50 to 55 millimeters of mercury or 6.7 to 7.3 kilopascals or then normal capnia, which uh, most pr probably define as kilopascals 4.5 to 6 or sort of 33.75 to 45 millimeters of mercury. Uh, so, so a slightly wider range of what would be considered to be normal capnia in these patients. And this intervention was then done by changing the settings of the mechanical ventilator. There were some instructions on how to do it, but it, it was very much up to the clinician. Uh, and this intervention continued for 24 hours, after which uh, ventilation was performed according to the wishes of the clinician. Mm -hmm. may, may I ask you, what kind of patients were there after cardiac arrest? They were unconscious. I've read on the trial that the motor score was not better than four, which means withdrawal yes. to pain. Yes. And were they re resuscitated from cardiac? Non-cardiac cause of arrest, were they shockable or not shockable? Yes. So the cause of the cardiac arrest uh, had to be either cardiac or unknown. So, so we did not include suffocation, known drug overdoses, uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, trauma, or, or, or anything like this. Uh, so it had to be cardiac or, or then uh, there was no idea about what, what the arrest was at the time of randomization. So, so yes, it included both shockable and non-shockable initial rhythms. 
Okay. And may I ask you, what was the primary outcome of the study? Was it biomarkers again or some of the hardest outcomes like survival, neurological outcomes? So the, the primary out outcome was the proportion of patients in with a good neurological outcome uh, at six uh, months. Uh, so so for, 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 for this, there are various scales that can be used, the Glasgow outcome scale, the modified ranking scale, or the CPC scale. Uh, they are all basically show very much the, the same things, but, but in, in the end, uh, the, the a, a priori defined proportion of patients uh, with a good neurological outcome at six months verified by somebody calling the patient who did not know in which uh, treatment group uh, the patient was. So the, the, the uh, identification and classification of the primary endpoint, which is a, a patient-centered endpoint, definitely uh, was done by, by was, was definitely not biased in any way. Okay, may I ask you if the treatment was blinded or not? So we have seen recently some trials in which, for instance, blood pressure was blinded to the clinicians as well. Uh, so in terms of, of clinical clinical team, were they blinded or was it an open label trial? It was an open label trial. Uh, I mean, uh, usually trials like this, where where you have a, a set of physiological targets, be it oxygen, carbon dioxide, blood pressure, uh, uh, they are open. Uh, there are, of course, the exceptions: the box trial from Denmark and blood pressure. But but yeah, TAME was an uh, unblinded trial. So the clinician did know what uh, the carbon dioxide uh, level was. Uh, uh, and, and it was, of course, important to be able to set the ventilator. Uh, but then the clinicians, for example, who were involved in determining the prognosis of the patient, the neurologist who decided, for example, on, on withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies, they were not... Uh, uh, the, the treatment uh, uh, group was not disclosed to them when, when the uh, assessment of the prognosis was done uh, in the intensive care unit. Okay, so clinicians, treating clinicians were blinded, but outcome were not blinded, but outcome assessors were blinded indeed. Yes, yes. Okay, excellent. Now let's go to the results. You included a, a remarkable group of patients, so 1,700 patients. How was the sample size calculated? I presume you will be, that was based on the rate of the primary outcome. What rate of primary outcome did you expect in that trial? So, uh, so the uh, primary endpoint was, there, there's always a trade-off uh, between mm -hmm. what can be uh, considered to be a, a, a sort of uh, absolute difference between the treatment groups. Uh, and if we think about the involvement of, of cardiac arrest trials, uh, this was, uh, uh, I mean, the, the previous, the, 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 the first hypothermia trials, they showed 15 to 20 percent differences. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so, so, so the, the samples, sample size was, was set so that uh, we, we would be able to, to show about an eight, nine percent difference in, in the primary in, in outcome mm -hmm. in six months. And with that, we ended up with one, uh, 1,700 patients. Mm -hmm. And I see the, so the uh, presumed uh, rate of the primary outcome in the control group was 
fifty percent, so pretty high. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, think so that's yeah. that, that that's uh, uh, that is uh, quite typical for randomized control trials. We saw that in in the TTM two trial as well. The, the proportion of patients surviving was around fifty percent, uh, and here the uh, the 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 good neurological outcome rate was 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 fifty percent as well. Mm -hmm. I see. Uh, so let's come now to the crucial point. Um, can you walk us through the results of this trial? What were the rates of the primary outcome in the two study groups? Uh, yes. So so if we think about, for example, the the intervention, which is of course crucial, then then we achieved good separation in carbon dioxide. So so it definitely appeared that the that the the clinicians were able to target this uh, this uh, the the carbon dioxide level that 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 they were supposed to to be targeting. Uh, uh, then the intervention went on for the twenty four hours. Uh, there was some uh, changes in the intervention. Some of the patients in the higher carbon dioxide group, where the treatment was stopped and and moved to the lower carbon dioxide group. Uh, uh, but, but apart from that, we definitely think that the intervention was uh, uh, was successful. Then data on primary outcome was available in about almost 95 to 96 percent. So there was some loss to follow up, but but there was not nothing major um, uh, different between the two groups. And and this is something you have to live with uh, when you mm -hmm. do a trials like trial like this. There will mm -hmm. be patients who are lost to follow up. Uh, okay. So, so, so the okay. primary, so good. yeah, the very primary good. outcome, the proportion of patients in a favorable neurological outcome at six months uh, mm -hmm. in the mild hypercapnia group was 43.5 percent, and mm -hmm. in the normal capnia group, 44.6 percent. So there was about a one percent difference, and uh, mm -hmm. it, it was not favoring the, the treatment group, mild hypercapnia. Uh, this, of course, may be due to chance, but nonetheless, the hypothesized improvement mm -hmm. was was not seen and and can mm -hmm. can be ruled out mm -hmm. by by this study. Then yeah, some of the barely. secondary endpoints, um, for mm -hmm. example, survival. Oh, yeah. yeah. So let's stop for the primary endpoints. So yeah. clearly, the trial was neutral. It's very yeah. very clear for the from the figures that the, the difference was not significant. The trial was very successful in deploying the program treatment. So, and the the, the loss of follow up was just five percent, which is which I think is acceptable. So, the the outcomes were successfully registered in ninety or uh, among over twenty patients. So, it was very good. But you haven't seen any difference in the primary outcome. Okay, that is very important. So, we have a neutral trial, and. Um, I wonder if there were any differences in the in the rates of adverse events and serious adverse events, because you know these are, are patients with brain injury. So some may argue that hypercapnia can be harmful in these patients. Uh, yes. So of course the 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 most uh, worrying uh, finding, of course, would be uh, if we would have seen. Uh, uh, something like uh, worsening of the cerebral edema, which is, of course, the, the reason why uh, high carbon dioxide has been slightly uh, uh, neurocritical care physicians have, have 
not been too keen to use it, for example, in, in severe traumatic brain injury or ICH. Uh, so, so no, no such differences uh, were seen uh, in the treatment groups. Uh, and another finding could be severe worsening of, of shock, uh, uh, cardiac failure related to a slightly lower pH, for example. That was not seen either or any major changes in, in epileptic activity. Uh, mm -hmm. That was not seen okay. either. So, so okay. apart from that, okay. uh, it, it, it was considered to be a, a, a safe, safe intervention with that regard. Of course, mm -hmm. it, it wasn't mm -hmm. effective either, which was, of mm -hmm. course, uh, what we were wanting to find. Okay, thanks, Marcos. Now to you, Chiara. I would like you to comment on this result. How do you explain the lack of difference between the two study arms in this trial? Well, this is really a $1 million question. So thank you for asking me, Claudio. Um, <laughs> I think You're there is a true, uh, a true answer, but uh, we can make some hypotheses. The first one is that we always have to consider the effect of CO2 on the brain. This is what Marcus was uh, mentioning. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, increased, uh, increasing the CO2 causes important vasodilation and the effect is uh, is quite huge. So in this trial, because it's not part of our practice except in a few centers, there was not the measurement of uh, intracranial pressure. So we can think, uh, we can hypothesize that maybe some patients uh, with an increase uh, of, uh, of a CO2 might have had some sort of cerebral edema, uh, which was related to the CO2. This uh, allows me to uh, highlight uh, one important point because uh, um, cardiac arrest patients are generally considered uh, general ICU patients. But uh, maybe I have a bias, but uh, to me are uh, neurocritical care patients because the majority of them uh, then die of uh, cerebral edema. And even in them, uh, the, the changes in CO2 can have a very, very important effect. Another uh, cause can be that um, it is true that we have uh, many... Uh, possibilities to, to manipulate uh, blood pressure, oxygen flow, uh, to increase the oxygen delivery, but uh, it is very, very difficult to assess and to increase the oxygen consumption. And there is also a high heterogeneity in terms of uh, oxygen consumption in these patients and in cardiac arrest patients. So uh, probably the, um, the individualization and the tailoring of the effect of the difference in flow caused by hypercapnia uh, in a large trial cannot be taken in, uh, in consideration. And then uh, uh, looking at, uh, at the paper, which is a fantastic study, and I congratulate with you and all the steering committee, uh, Marcus. Uh, but if you think, if you look at the design, um, hypercapnia was uh, randomized, the patients were randomized within uh, three hours, and the duration was uh, 24 hours. If you look at the data, hypercapnia was uh, quite common at the moment of the randomization, so within the first three hours. So this may have uh, attenuated the differences between, uh, uh, between the, the groups. Of course, pragmatically, we have to uh, to use a certain time uh, time time points uh, and also the duration of 24 hours is obviously uh, a pragmatic decision in order to to have the, the, the to make it feasible however this may in any case uh, influence the, uh, the the final results and then if i can add but this is a general uh, comment 
it is true that we always want uh, to do interventions which improve six months mortality and neurological outcome because it's clinically extremely important. However, sometimes uh, we use scale like VMRS and VEGOSE, which are good, are excellent scales, but are not super precise and fine, for example, in assessing neurological cognitive dysfunction or more precise <laughs> neurological signs which can be affected by the, by the intervention. Mm -hmm. So to summarize your point, one point was that the population will be heterogeneous. So in some patients, potentially hypercapnia uh, may be beneficial in increasing blood flow, but in some others, the increase in blood flow may cause also an increase in intracranial pressure or cerebral edema, am I right? Yeah. And the other point can be the, the there was a hypercapnia on admission in both groups. I noticed that in the trial. So this may have diluted the effect of hypercapnia, if yeah. ever. Yeah, it's okay. possible. Right. So, Chiara, in light of the same study results, what are, in your opinion, the knowledge gaps that still persist about cerebral blood flow after cardiac arrest? And what could be the future strategies to improve it? So, uh, in my opinion, and it is not just about this trial, but it's a general uh, consideration. You know that uh, uh, recently we had a lot of negative trials. It's more common to have a negative trial than a positive trial at the end of the story. Yes. And this is, uh, in my opinion, related to what I was uh, mentioning before, the heterogeneity of the population. Uh, which cannot be precisely be assessed in large multi-center trial, or at least uh, it takes much more effort to do this. In this specific case, for example, uh, here CO2 was manipulated uh, with the intention to improve uh, the cerebral blood flow, uh, but probably the next step will be to monitor better the cerebral blood flow and tailor the therapy according to the effect of CO2 on the cerebral blood flow. So one, one arm should be more individualized. So neuromonitoring, possibly multimodal neuromonitoring tools, which tailor my treatment on the improvement of cerebral blood flow and oxygenation. This will be the, the ideal next step in my opinion. Okay, so a clinical aside, a physiological endpoint to see if we really are improving the blood flow in these patients, apart from causing vasodilation. Yeah. And if we improve oxygenation, I presume. Exactly, Claudio. Yes. Okay, excellent. Thanks, Chiara. Now, Marcos, back to you. I know you measured neuron-specific analysis as a marker in neuronal injury in the TAME trial, but I'm not sure I've seen the result. So, uh, neuron-specific NLAs was not part of the, the primary TAME trial. But there is a biobank, uh, about mm -hmm. 450 patients. Uh, so definitely uh, there is a plan to look at neuron-specific NLAs and, and perhaps also neurofilament light in the TAME patients. Uh, so, so that will, of course, give us some more information. Uh, can I briefly comment on, on, on Chiara's excellent points? Uh, please do. Yeah, so I think... Uh, Chiara's points are, are definitely uh, exactly optimal in, in this setting because uh, it, it may it may be that the intervention was started uh, too late. Uh, it may be that the reperfusion injury happens during the first uh, hour after cardiac arrest, 
And of course, if that would be the case, we would need to start an intervention in the ambulance. Uh, and I'm sure many of you have seen the Australian exact trial where there was an attempt to decrease uh, oxygen, give less ox oxygen to alleviate this ischemia reperfusion injury. Uh, and that was not successful and, and indeed uh, was, was uh, indicated harm for reducing yeah. oxygen. So the ambulance is definitely a very difficult uh, setting to, to manipulate these uh, physiological targets. And then the other point, uh, it, it is also very valid. I mean, if the cerebral oxygen delivery, if the cerebral blood flow is normal, uh, then probably it doesn't make any difference to increase it even further. Uh, so somehow here we, of course, assume that this was a problem affecting all patients the same way. But Kiera is perfectly right that this may not be the case. We may have different types of patients, some have vasoconstriction, some have uh, normal blood flow, and, and somehow to be able to find these patients early during ICU care and then uh, initiate a, a, an intervention aiming to alleviate that. That's, uh, I'm not sure if we're going to see such a trial within the next five years, but I, I, I do mm -hmm. think that within the next 10 years, uh, there will be such trials using neuromonitoring to, to target uh, different uh, physiological endpoints. Definitely. Something to be investigated. Okay. Thank you very much, Marcus. Thank you, Chiara. I would like to congratulate Marcus and the steering committee with this fantastic trial, the very first trial that investigated uh, strong endpoints in, uh, for uh, hypercapnia after cardiac arrest. I would like to thank again our guests, Marcus Griffith from the University of Helsinki, Finland, and Chiara Robra from the University of Genoa, Italy. Thank you for listening. This is Claude Sandroni from Essex.